When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, as we wrap up our March continuation of NFL Black History, we've seen many teams go on to greatness after bringing in black players, except for one that blatantly refused. The Kennedy administration would have something to say about that. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right, it's Tuesday. Show drops tomorrow. Let's hurry up and get this over with. (laughs) NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. This show is for you, not for those. Who already know this stuff if you know it already I, I get it i understand okay but this show is for those who don't know as much about nfl history so we are here to enlighten teach and learn it is the behind the mic podcast i am your host michael neal jr we're presented by billy of sports billy of sports podcast network and billyofsports.com you can find all of our content creators our writers as well as our podcasters and our home base of Spreaker is where you can find all of our shows as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. All right, so getting into it, I know you've heard of the Harlem Globetrotters, the predominantly all-black semi-pro basketball team that travels all over the place. And I think uh, the thing that sticks out most about the Globetrotters to me is just how entertaining that they are, you know, performing stunts, and tricks during the games, involving the fans uh, as they whoop just about every team that they play against, right? Okay, so the Harlem Globetrotters, they were organized in Chicago all the way back in 1926, and then they were known as the Savoy Big Five, just giving you a little bit of history behind them, right? It's 1926. Eventually, the name was changed to the New York Globetrotters, and then to the Harlem Globetrotters in 1930. And this was thanks, thanks to 
Abe Saberstein, who was like their uh, the guy that uh, that made the moves. He was he was the guy that managed that team um, and and pretty much put them on the map to where they are today and got them started way back in the 1920s and 30s. The NBA, as we know it, started in 1949. This uh, was basically from the National Basketball League, the NBL which started in 1937 in the Basketball Association of America, the BAA, that started in 1946. They merged, right? During that 49-50 season, the NBA integrated. And I quote from a article in the Sporting News written by Carlin Gay, he said, quote, Chuck Cooper became the first black player selected in the NBA draft. Nathaniel Sweetwater Clifton became the first black player to sign an NBA contract and Earl Lloyd became the first black player to actually play in an NBA game. Three major professional sports had all integrated. The NFL reintegration in 1946, you had Major League Baseball in 47 through Jackie Robinson, and then the NBA in 1949. With all of this change, just keep in mind that the Globetrotters were an all-black team, kind of. Of course, it was the opposite in professional football as well as baseball. Just imagine though, and it's something that I thought about, just imagine you get up to go play a game, all right? So you you get on the team bus uh, with mostly your white teammates. This is you and another black player and because you're roommates, all right? It, it may be four of y'all, but most of the time it's two. And um, you, know, you get on the bus, you go to check into the team hotel. You got two options. Either they're gonna let y'all play, uh, sleep there or they're gonna tell you two black guys you got to go sleep somewhere else or you know sometimes the whole team would leave the hotel but then there's other times when the two black players would have to go and get a room in the black side of town or just a hotel that would accept them then there's game day game day you 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 either like fritz pollard you have to sneak and get dressed and show up at the game or you're able to dress at the stadium and in the middle of the game you're having to deal with verbal abuse, getting called the N-word, spit on, punched, kicked, and, and all kinds of manner of things coming from the fans as well as the opposing players, maybe even the coaches as well. And some of your teammates, um, they're going to stick up for you. Some of them, maybe they didn't. <laughs> Just depending on what team that you played on. All of this abuse you had to take. If you were, the, uh, were a black athlete playing football, let alone any other sport on any level, you were a target. Whites, for the most part, had a problem uh, playing alongside African-Americans, watching African-Americans play against their teams, and even some of them, you know, having them on their teams as coaches. They all experienced this. These guys from 1904 to 1915, the first four, Charles Follis, Doc Baker, Henry McDonald, Charlie Smith. One day we're going to dive deep into them. Look, I mean, we got a lot of Black History Months uh, to, uh, to do this. I don't have to cram everything uh, in a couple of weeks but uh it didn't th these things continued from 1920 to 1933 in the nfl from fritz, pa fritz pollard to duke slater uh to ray kemp and you know the, all the all the guys in between even though the nfl reintegrated in 1946 it was done so with some hesitation there's no secret there it doesn't matter if it was the rounds with washington or, or woody strode or cleveland with the with willis and motley who turned out to be hall of famers didn't matter their best days were behind them or ahead of them or even if they ended up making the pro football hall of fame there was always an issue that dark cloud of racism and segregation 
that hung not only over sports, but also America as a whole. A great number of blacks that came into the NFL in the beginning were mostly just signed. Eventually, you had the first African-American that was drafted. We've talked about him, George Telefaro. He was actually drafted by the Chicago Bears in 1949. George Hallis was going to take a chance on his first black athlete to play for him, but that didn't manifest itself. Why? Because he decided to, to keep his commitment because he already signed with the LA Dons of the rival league, the AAFC. And he stuck with that commitment, having to sign that contract and thinking also that he would never be drafted in the first place by the Bears. At that point, there were more blacks being uh, brought in and signed by the AAFC at the time, right? So it wasn't until Wally Triplett was drafted by the Detroit Lions in that same year. He became the first African-American to actually play as a draftee, right? May 17, 1954, let's fast forward. That brought about change in public schools as the Supreme Court declared that segregation was unconstitutional in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education. Sports had gotten already ahead of this, especially professional football. They got ahead of most of the other professional sports. They were the first you know, to do this. But uh, that Supreme Court decision such as that, it would only pay the future of American society as well. By the end of 1954, uh, that NFL season that is, there were two teams that had no black players on it. It was the Detroit Lions and the Washington football team. Players like Bob Mann and Wally Triplett were already gone. Guys we've talked about in, in the past couple of shows. I mentioned last week about what Hall of Famer Jim Brown had to say um, about, an NFL, you know, about the NFL's quota for blacks. Uh, and it was echoed by Ron Mix, who's white. Uh, of course, Jim Brown, black. Ron Mix, who's white, in the offensive lineman that was a Hall of Famer with the Chargers, he echoed the same thing. The Detroit Lions had a pattern of rotating black players on their roster every year. One example was that of fullback John Henry Johnson, who we featured last week. Um, he was the lone black line during their 1957 championship season. This all according to author Charles Ross. They wrote the book that I'm reading right now, Outside the Lions. But rosters definitely definitely improved as far as a count by 1959 you can go ahead and say it they went as few as four in the beginning to as many as uh, well actually 50 blacks were on uh rosters by 1959 more and more opportunities more talent was being put on display meaning there were more african americans on nfl teams but here's the crazy thing about it all right by 1959 the nfl drew three million 140,409 paying customers, which set an attendance record for the eighth straight year. They were coming out to see these boys play. They were interested. Now, I mean, you could treat it like a LeBron James thing. You say, well, they hate you, so they want to see you lose or get beat up or yell at you. But I, would, I think that they were just better athletes. I'm just going to put it out there. A lot of them were just better athletes than what they were used to seeing. And the more and more they, these guys were put on these teams, why, why, why else do you think they were getting put on these teams? And these, these guys were uh, helping these teams win football games, the ones that got, you know, had staying power, right? But here's the other question, though. Where weren't they? What teams didn't have them? There was one. And you would have thought that the success you've seen African-Americans having past and present would have some effect on certain owners thinking well you can't change the heart right coming up next 
We'll give you another rundown of the examples this guy was passing up. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's wintertime. When temperatures go down, the likelihood goes up that your furnace and other appliances go down with them. So don't risk a costly replacement. Stay comfortable with coverage on the appliances you depend on most with the Service Guard Appliance Repair Program from Black Hills Energy. It's peace of mind in a plan. Visit blackhillsenergy.com slash sign up to learn more. All right, as I alluded to earlier, blacks had to endure a lot of unjust punishment and abuse, both verbal and physical. We have discussed so many players that made it to the NFL. Some careers were short, some were long, some were unfairly cut short. And some, like I said, they made the Hall of Fame. And some of them may not have made the Hall of Fame. They played six, seven years. We got a couple of guys uh, that we've talked about in the past and some that we're going to talk about today. Um, but I can't help to wonder how many missed out on the chance. You know, it's the fact that there were players that were better than those that were currently in the league at the time, black or white. Um, but we'll never know. And that's sad. Change is good, though. Again, by 1959, the NFL had 50 black players on roster, save for one team. We'll get to them in a second. But let's talk about some of the great players that got into this to this point. Working a little bit backwards, kicked the music. Lynn Ford. All right. Drafted by the L.A. Dons in 1948. He actually was an offensive and defensive end. Yeah, he played receiver as well as defensive end on, you know. But what happened was, of course, the AAFC folded after just four years. And after the 49 season was over with, 1950, they had what was called a dispersal draft. Of course, we've talked about the three teams that were brought, uh, actually fused into uh, the league and then the rest of the players were put into a bowl, I guess, for lack of a better term. They were put into a pool, uh, and there was the dispersal draft. They was going to put these players, and they were going to draft. Uh, they would draft who they wanted. It was the, um, who was it? Oh, it was the Baltimore Colts, the first incarnation. Uh, the San Francisco 49ers and the Cleveland Browns. Those are the teams that stuck, right? And one of those teams, the Browns, they already uh, – had Max Speedy and Dante Lavelli as, as receivers, starting receivers, and they drafted Lynn Ford, uh, you know, to be on their squad. And the guy was a good receiver, but he was an even better defensive end. Uh, from 1951 to 1954, Ford ended up being a four-time Pro Bowler after switching and maintaining that defensive end position. And he was a first-team All-Pro. Another one of these guys uh, that his owner missed out on 1957 draft, it was, what, 26 rounds and included nine Pro Football Hall of Famers, four in the first eight picks alone. Green Bay, they selected Par Horning with the number one overall pick out of Notre Dame. Then you had quarterback Lynn Dawson. He went fifth to Pittsburgh. Of course, he ended up in the Hall of Fame, not with the Pittsburgh Steelers, but with the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, and then you drop down 
to number six, it was Jim Brown. He ended up with Cleveland. We already know what greatness he was. The Baltimore Colts selected Jim Parker, eighth overall, a linebacker in office of lineman. He was an All-American and Outland, Outland Award winner as the nation's top lineman out of Ohio State. Now, according to his coach at the time, Woody Hayes, the legend, Parker, uh, he said Parker should play strictly defense. The Colts, they put him at left tackle. That's a big change. And keep in mind, Ohio State, they were primarily a running team, as were most teams at the time. Uh, they ran the football all the time. And so he basically had to learn how to be a better pass blocker on the fly. His first game, uh, Baltimore threw 47 passes against the Eagles. And from what I read in the book, 75 Seasons, I mean, that was the uh, basically about how many times they threw in a season at Ohio State, 47 times, 50 times. Now, Cole's head coach at the time, Weeb Eubank, he had to trust him because Parker would be protecting Johnny Unitas, the Hall of Fame quarterback, the one after Otto Graham was named, you know, the greatest quarterback of all time. Uh, and it Parker's first practice, Eubank told him, basically, quote, just keep him away from John. And I guess he was pretty good because not only did he play his first six years at left tackle, he was voted to eight consecutive Pro Bowls and was a first team All-Pro every single time. That's nuts. That's crazy. And never mind the fact he played three of his last five years at left guard. They moved him to left guard and he made uh, first team All-Pro teams during that as well. That's just how good he was. And after retiring in 1967, Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1973. And another one of those, uh, the Baltimore Colts, they ended up winning back-to-back -back championships in 58 and 59. They weren't the dominant team of the 50s. It was more the Browns. Um, but those Colts teams, they were loaded. And one of Parker's teammates uh, was one of the main cogs in their offensive machine, Lenny Moore. This guy, I mean, I, I mean, just watching old film on him when I was a kid, I actually wanted to wear his number, 24, because he was a running back. He was a hybrid. He was a running back and a receiver, more of a receiver than a running back. But, I, and, and we'll have another one of these guys by the end of the show we're going to talk about too. But he was a hybrid, and he was a, a halfback out of Penn State who was drafted in the first round in 1956, ninth overall. See the growth? <laughs> uh, Moore was one of those guys that, you would have loved to have seen the play today. I mean, like I said, he was at hybrid, and he won Rookie of the Year in 1956. And in 12 seasons with Baltimore, he scored 63 rushing touchdowns and had 48 more touchdowns receiving. He made seven Pro Bowls, was a first-team All-Pro five times, and second-team All-Pro twice. That's great. But in 1962, he suffered a real serious knee injury that basically stuck with him for the next two seasons, in 62 and 63. He missed most of that time in those two years. 1964, though, he reestablished his position as one of the best players in the game. He scored 20 touchdowns in 1964, a record that stood for, what, 40 years? And not only did he win NFL Comeback Player of the Year, he was voted NFL MVP. And when Moore retired after the 1967 season, he finished his career with over 12,451 combined net yards. That's 5,000 yards rushing, and he caught over uh, 360 passes, 363 to be exact, and he scored 113 touchdowns. This all according to ProFootballHallOfFame.com. The guy was productive. Now, a guy, another one who was, he was good. He wasn't great. He's in the San Francisco um, Hall of Fame, San Francisco 49ers ring of 
fame or, or whatever it is that they call it. I keep forgetting. But another one of Jim Parker and Lenny Moore's teammates, and it was just for two years, was wide receiver R.C. Owens, or they called him Alley Now, before Owens played for the Colts during the 1962 and 63 years, he was a San Francisco 49er, and we've talked about him before, and that was basically, we were talking about the history of player movement. It was about that one-year option rule from 1947 to 1962. Players became free agents for the first time in 62, and only one player that took advantage of that was R.C. Owens when he left for the 49ers to play for the Colts. Ownership wasn't happy that they lost their star receiver. Why? I mean, after being drafted by the 49ers in, 40, in 57, that is, he was a second-team All-Pro by 1960, and he enjoyed his best year in 1961. He had over 1,000 yards receiving and scored five touchdowns. And after Owens signed with Baltimore in 62, that prompted what was called the Roselle rule that was named after Commissioner Pete Rozelle. That basically said a team would have to compensate um, the team, uh, well, basically said a team would have to be compensated for losing a free agent, you know, by the team that the player signs with. So the Colts would have to compensate the 49ers for losing. That that was what the rule said. And where Pete Rozelle came in was if there was no agreement made between the two teams, Rozelle himself would decide the compensation. Now, Owens wasn't a Hall of Fame player, just said that. But he was a good receiver, just said that. Uh, again, he's in the 49ers ring of honor, but his claim to fame actually comes from a cartoon character of the time, uh, Alley Oop. I'd never heard of that, but it was basically, you know, when we think about Alley Oop these days, throw somebody a oop, it's a law pass in the Duncan basketball. But it was a 1933 comic, and it was a name given to a high uh, arc pass that was basically thrown by 49ers quarterback Y.A. Tittle to R.C. Owens. And I think that the cartoon was like, like kind of like George of the Jungle. He swung from the trees or something like that. But when the uh, Owens was a rookie in 57, the Niners were practicing for a week two matchup against the Rams. And the 49ers offense was basically running the Rams, what they were pretending to be the Rams playing against their defense, right? Well, Tittle kept throwing these hot passes, and the six, Owens was 6'3", and he keeps going up over two and three guys snatching the ball. So they decided they was going to make it a play in real games. And as a matter of fact, two games they won, as a matter of fact. They beat the Rams that that uh, that week, 23-20, to 20, on a last-minute touchdown pass on that play. And then later in the season, they got a 35-31 victory over the Lions on a 41-yard bomb. Uh, uh, alley-oop pass to R.C. Owens. I mean, these are the kind of players that you're talking about. And let me squeeze in one more. Ali Matson, one of the greatest athletes in the world. You know, a lot of them, they compete in the Olympics. And that's what Ali Matson did. He was a sprinter. This dude was 6'2", 220 pounds. And he was a sprinter. I think he won a gold and a bronze medal uh, for sprinting in the Olympics. That's, that's crazy. You know, just imagine handing this big guy a football and yes it was in football that he made his bread he played from 1952 to 1966 that's a long time uh, he played with the Chicago Cardinals the LA Rams the Detroit Lions for a year and finished up his career with the Philadelphia Eagles a 17 first team all pro a six time pro bowler and he's actually uh, I can't believe he's actually in the uh, Eagles uh, Hall of Fame and of course he's in the Arizona Cardinals ring of honor Pro Football Hall of Famer. Pro Football Hall of Famer. Because, I mean, I could get into Jim Brown. Um, he wasn't an Olympic sprinter. 
but he had, you know, he was one of the greatest players of all time, at least uh, one of the greatest running backs. He only played nine years. Uh, we've talked about Jim Brown before, but in nine years he finished his career, his Hall of Fame career, as the NFL's all-time leading rusher. I mean, it made like the pro football, made the Pro Bowl just about every year, and was a first-team All-Pro just about every year. I mean, it's, this is just a fraction of the type of players that would be passed up, or they would be let go early <laughs> by these owners who had a problem with skin color. And it was simply because of that, you know, that they were letting them go. Most African Americans were simply tolerated. I'm just gonna be honest. And there are many reasons why. I mean, you got some great. Um, some players and they're going to bring you money at the gate I just told you eight years in a row the attendance had gone up why is that because you had more African Americans on the field I'm not going to lie to you uh, you had some really great athletes that were there and they want to see the show I was talking to one of my buddies I, keep, I refer to him we talk every day about football Kenny Johnson he played for the Buffalo Bills he was a pass rushing specialist and, and this is something that we talked about, just so happy to talk about today. Um, they, they want to see the show. These guys put on a show. And for that, that was ownership's money. But some people don't care about money. Some people's heart is just toe up. You know what I mean? Um, there's a number of owners, coaches, um, you know, they, they made these moves for competitive balance as well as for their pockets. But not the owner of the Washington football team, George Preston Marshall. You also have to keep in mind that it was Marshall's idea to low-key keep black players out of the league during that 13-year stretch. Now, the civil rights movement, movement of the 1960s was about to explode. And a time for change was upon America because minorities wanted equal rights. They wanted to be treated fairly, especially African Americans. It may not have been totally genuine, genuine with all the uh, teams in pro football, but there were African-Americans that suited up for him. And that change was about to hit D.C., whether Marshall liked it or not. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Washington, D.C. Has anybody ever seen the movie Head of State? It had, you know, Chris Rock in it. He ends up becoming president of the United States. I mean, can a city be more black? with uh, just going to say it like this with a, a white Caucasian center. Yeah, that's the, the government, you know. Um, Washington, D.C. wasn't always like that. Washington was, and probably still is considered, you know, somewhat of a southern city. I didn't know that. I always think of it as like a, a northern city, but it's more of a southern city, you know, as far as history is concerned. Um, probably not now as much back in the 30s and 40s, when they were strong on segregation. And I must quote from Charles Ross's book that during the 50s, the 1950s, Washington gradually desegregated schools, movie houses, theaters, churches, playgrounds, swimming pools, bowling alleys, restaurants, hotels, and also public transportation. And it ended up having black policemen, 
firefighters and you had blacks that were joining the bar association, the nurses association, the medical society. They held government jobs, maybe not on the same level, but they held government jobs. Um, and they also you had African-Americans playing for the Washington Senators, the baseball team senators by the late 1950s. It also talks about the demographics of D.C. within a 10 year period. In 1950, 65 percent of that city was white. By 1960, it was down to 45 percent. Lots of changes across the country. And they came, um, it, you know, it came to African-Americans and equal rights. That stuff was just getting started. Meanwhile, George Preston Marshall was not about to move on bringing any black players on his team whatsoever. Go back to 1932. Marshall uh, bought the franchise. They was the Boston Braves back in 1932. And he changed the name in 1937, excuse the term, the Redskins, and moved them to Washington, D.C. But check this out. He hired a full-blooded Native American named Lone Star Dietz as the coach and not long after that the team actually was good 1937 they won an nfl title uh i think it was also in 1943 uh, but they won six division titles and two championships between 1937 and 1945 of course that loss to the la rams in 45 would be the last time they would even appear in the championship game go all the way to super bowl seven in 1972 when they lost to the undefeated dolphins and go even further than that matter of fact washington only had three winning seasons between 1945 and 1969 that was the year that marshall died a lot of this was due to the fact that he would not bring any black talented players on his football team and people constantly called him out on it um they couldn't afford to be doing that because they stunk 1960 and in 1961 the two years combined Washington finished with a 2-21 and 3 record. You sucked. They sucked. They sucked. It was even more uh embarrassing. You know, the 38 black players were picked in the 1961 draft. No, none of those were selected by Washington. Of course not. Writers across the US were critical of Marshall's stubbornness. He was very stubborn. He was gung-ho. I'm not doing it one sports writer said that the redskins were the whitest and worst team in professional football <laughs> that's crazy uh one of my favorite quotes though came from pure surprise winning columnist shirley povich of the washington post who called the washington colors burgundy golden caucasian yeah they were they were yeah they were really giving it to marshall in that franchise they they really they had fell on hard times and it was a glaring reason why but enter the Kennedys. John F. Kennedy would win the presidency in 1961. By the way, if you're looking for a great podcast on his assassination, I need you to check out my buddy, Kirby Gilreath. His podcast is called Mama, Somebody Shot the President. Great stuff, by the way. So we know that Kennedy wasn't perfect, though, but he had the support of blacks across the U.S., even when endorsed. Uh, he was endorsed, by the way, by a couple of professional football players like Gene Big Daddy Lipscomb of the Baltimore Colts and Willie Gallimore running back for the Chicago Bears. Um, and I'll, let me slide this in. Is that it's crazy because, I mean, it's not, it's not, it wasn't uh, not known by the black players that were playing on these other teams because you had guys like Gallimore and Lipscomb and Jim Brown and Ollie Matson. They had some of their best games. And they said, I've read where they said, we want to have our best game against Washington. 
because they do not want us on their team. And I totally get that. And I'm totally for it. You destroy them, beat them. Because <laughs> they, I mean, they're not trying to, they're not trying to have you. He don't want any part. The, the ownership doesn't want to have any part of you. And I, I mean, I understand their upsetness, their, their anger. Um, now, many African Americans got jobs in and outside of the White House, and this was eventually going to extend to that local football team. The 1946 history would repeat itself in the reintegration of pro football. This time, it would be for the Washington football team. U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall, recognized Marshall's, I'll just call it Jim Crow policy of running his football team as did the rest of his, uh, the Kennedy administration, by the way. The civil rights movements that were going on, plus the addition of the new AFL the year before, which you know just about every team in the new league, as well as uh, the NFL, had an African-American player on it. They had African-Americans on these teams. And the, the AFL, yeah, their new league, they was trying to do exactly like the AAFC. They weren't trying to die out. They were trying to um not stink okay they wanted some of the best talent the afl i mean some of those owners weren't too much different than marshall i'm just gonna put it out there uh <laughs> there was some segregation especially down there in houston bud adams uh and <laughs> they wouldn't let they only had certain sections i'm not saying they were the only team but this was noted uh but um they, they were they couldn't afford to not bring in black talent and they went as far as going to get black talent from HBCUs as well. We've talked about that in the past. Uh, they, the NFL wasn't doing that on the regular, but the AFL started doing it. There's a reason they want to compete. They were competing for fans, dollars, and all of that. And eventually it will be television, right? So with all of that, um, Marshall's time was about up with everything that was going on around it. In March of 1961, the Interior Department lawyers let you all know that Marshall in, in the Washington football team had just signed a 30-year lease to play all their home games at D.C. Stadium, the new $24 million structure that was located in uh, Acosta Flats that was a part of the National Capital Park System. And that was financed by public funds. Sure, you remember what happened with L.A. Coliseum, the L.A. Rams, owner Dan Reeves, yeah, they couldn't play there unless they signed black players because, I mean, they got called out on it and they could, they moved all the way across the country, 2,400 miles and everything was going to be blown up if they didn't sign uh, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode. That's, that's what was going to happen. They needed some black players. Well, on Mars 24th, you'd all let Preston Marshall know uh, that quote, any public facility in a park area prohibited job discrimination to any party contact uh, contracting his use you can't you can't be there you can't do it and on march 28th marshall was given a deadline for compliance he had till october 1st uh the washington football team's first home game integrate or you're out of here that was that that's what it was you had to integrate or you're not playing here keep this also in mind two things that Marshall would always say. One, it's a business decision. He didn't want to alienate any of his Southern white fans. Yeah, that's bull crap. He was afraid to lose money. No, but he didn't want black players either. And two, he always said what? 
Washington will start uh, signing black players when the Harlem uh, Globetrotters start signing and playing white players. Duly noted. Well, another great running back from Syracuse University, other than Jim Brown, was Ernie Davis, who became the first black player to win the Heisman Trophy in 1961. And as far as those threats of the cancellation of a 30-year lease, Marshall actually thought that it was a joke and that the government would not follow through on those threats. After going back and forth, saying either publicly or privately that uh, he would not bring any African-Americans to his team, no black players. And even questioning whether or not the government had the power to follow through as well, Washington made Davis the first pick in the 1961 NFL draft. But there was a wrench in it. It was the 1962 draft. Davis said, I'm going to play for that SOB. It was the 1962 draft. I'm not playing for that SOB. I also never knew that the Buffalo Bills also picked Davis two days earlier in the AFL draft. So you had to know that AFL and NFL players were being drafted. Players were being drafted by two different teams a lot of times. And whoever had the more money or whatever decision the player wanted to make on who he wanted to play for, you had some that decided to play in the AFL because the NFL, for the most part, wasn't trying to embrace us. But then you had some NFL teams that would get those, those better players. It just depended. And that's where the arms race really began. But um, Washington wasn't done after Davis. They used their second pick on another black halfback, Joe Hernandez. I think he ended up being a receiver out of the University of Arizona. And they also uh, snatched up Michigan State's Ron Hatcher in the eighth round. But the rights to Ernie Davis would be traded to the Cleveland Browns in exchange for the Browns. Uh, they sent halfback Bobby Mitchell and running back Leroy Jackson to Washington. Washington would add two more blacks on their roster during their offseason. Guard John Nisby from Pittsburgh and then Ron Hatcher, who would actually be the first a black football player to actually sign a contract with Washington. Unfortunately, this jerk, uh, Marshall showed zero class when photographers asked him to pose with Hatcher. He refused. What did he say? I don't want to exploit the situation. Yeah, that's, that, that was BS. Yeah, that was crap. In the end, Joe Hernandez, he never signed. Nisby was a, hall, uh, a pro bowler for the Steelers in 59 and, in, and 61 before he was dealt to Washington. He made the Pro Bowl again in 1962, his first year with them. He was released after playing just three years with Washington, and he didn't retire. Now, Bobby Mitchell, on the other hand, he came to the league in 1958 with the Cleveland Browns as he was drafted in the seventh round out of Illinois. He finished uh, second in Rookie of the Year voting that year. You know, he was pretty good, right? In his four years with Cleveland, he was a running back and receiver, much like Lenny Moore, rolled up into one. He made the Pro Bowl in 1960, and after being traded to Washington, in 1962, he made three straight Pro Bowls, including being first-team All-Pro in that 62 season. He led the league in receiving yards, I think, two straight years in 62 and 63, and even led them in touchdown receptions uh, for a season. Um, now, as far as George Marshall, Preston Marshall was concerned, Nisby and Mitchell actually had two different opinions. Nisby couldn't stand it because he knew what he was about. Now, Bobby Mitchell... A little bit different he actually said he never really saw that side of bobby uh, bobby uh of, of marshall and it's funny um there was a story told on the movie 75 seasons that Mar uh, bobby mitchell told about marshall 
uh, they said that uh, they had some kind of luncheon uh, and they st all started up saying, uh, st stood up and started singing Dixie. And he, sa he said he didn't know the words and he said George Preston Marshall looked at him and said, Bobby Mitchell sing. And uh, he didn't know the words. I mean, that, that right there, that was just blatant. That was just blatant, singing Dixie, you know. <laughs> That's crazy. You have you have a press conference, and, and you're the first black player to be one of the few black players to be signed to the team for the first time in history, and they start singing that. Yeah, that yeah, that was that was a low blow. Uh, but he had no problems with 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 uh, Marshall. But after he retired in 1968, uh, he began his front office career with Washington for the next 40 years. Vince Lombardi actually helped him get his first job as a scout, and eventually. Bobby Mitchell moved up to become the assistant GM for Washington. Now, he thought he was going to become the first black GM in NFL history. He was passed up twice. First in 1978 in favor of Bobby Beathard. And then again in 1989 in favor of, some of you guys may know this name, Charlie Casserly. He expressed his hurt after retiring in 2003. But I mean, in all, Mitchell had a Hall of Fame career. He ended up being inducted in 1983. He also ended up in both the Washington and Cleveland Rings of Honor. And his number 49 was also retired by Washington. Bad move, Steve Spurrier, by bringing his number out of retirement like that. The bad move. Anyway, but at long last, every football team in the pros was integrated in 1962. Long, hard road to get to that point where we are today. Of course, we still have so many other places in need of change, especially in coaching as well as ownership. One of these days... Now, as far as a white player playing for the Globetrotters, you know, I don't know exactly what year that George Preston Marshall said that, but Abe Saperstein, who was the team's founder and one of the original white players, he had to sub one time because somebody got hurt. A buddy, leave it, was there in the 1930s as the second actual Caucasian player in that team's history. And in 1942, Bob Carson's, who died not too long ago, a couple years ago, he became the team's third white player so, I mean, we're too, too many excuses there, uh, Mr. Marshall. Um, that was just an excuse. <laughs> anyway, that's it. That's it. All right, references. References. Let's, let's get to them. Thanks to the sporting news, the Black Fives, the history of the era that led to the NBA's racial integration by Carlin Gay. LA Times, and this was from their archives, January 7th, 2005. The New York Times, Douglas Martin, this one dated June 19, 2012. R.C. Owens, receiver who made the alley-oop famous, dies at 77. Also, Britannica.com, ProFootballHallOfFame.com, and ProFootballReference.com. The book, 75 Seasons. Also, America's Game, the NFL at 100. Yes, doubly authored by Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams. Also, Arthur Ash Jr., author of A Hard Road to Glory, the African-American athlete in football. And last but not least, Outside the Lines, very good book by Charles K. Ross, African-Americans and the Integration of the National Football League. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Michael Neal Jr., presented by Billy of Sports, Billy of Sports Podcast Network, BillyofSports.com. Go to it, click on it, read and listen. Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about this show or I'll find your house. Out.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.